0: Love, talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today. And we want to thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues and get broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. Uh, today, I'm happy to be broadcasting live from Ottawa. Iowa, where they are in the beginning stages of um, planning and doing a needs assessment to uh, get their own broadband project in, in gear, uh, and, and I want to thank them for, for having me here and, uh, and, and being able to do the show from here. Uh, today, we're going to, um,
1: it's kind of like old school
0: week here, where, where we have a guest on that was here a year ago, just about, um, last year from North Carolina. So North Carolina is in the middle of a number of different um, broadband initiatives, and uh, one of those is being uh, driven by a nonprofit corporation called MCNC, and uh, they were here, part of the reason they were here last year is that they had this interesting uh, promotion called uh, 12 Days of Broadband. And they're going to do it again this year. So obviously that program worked very much. But I, I wanted them here not just obviously for you know for the for talk to talk about the promo, but talk about some of the exciting things that they have been doing over the past year. Uh, to talk about uh, you know the the institutions that they've wired up and the projects that they've put forward, and also talk about what they have uh, on on the planning chart for next year for 2013. And since we're here in, in Atumla, you know, talking about planning and getting things off the ground, you know, we want to share with them, you know, some some planning ideas for all of our audience, both local and and on that are listening to the show from from elsewhere. Uh, Joe Federaiso is the president CEO of um, MCNC, and Joe's got it going on. He actually had a pro- program an event earlier today. Uh, and so he's all fired up to really talk about all the great stuff going on in broadband in North Carolina. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Craig. Uh, it's great to be back with you again. And uh, thank you for doing all that you do to uh, advocate for uh, broadband infrastructure, particularly in, in rural America, where it is uh, it is it is very, very necessary for future economic growth and uh, better health care, access to education, and everything you can think of.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, no, it's definitely good to have you back. So let's talk about today's event. That was actually what caught my eye. You guys did a whole half a day of interesting stuff. What was that all about?
1: Yeah, so North Carolina has a great history of, of innovation in uh, in broadband and networking. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, look at uh, at Unionet and Suranet uh, that were incubated at UNC Chapel Hill and at Duke University as kind of the forerunners to the commercial internet. Uh, uh, and and we got together today because um, there there's a confluence of a lot of things happening right now in the state, but we wanted to. Celebrate a little bit and and inform a new and expanded audience of kind of our rich history in in networking and in broadband connectivity in the state, but then also um continue to talk about the economic development that this spurs um, we've got a relatively new entrant into north carolina it's a long standing networking company called Extreme Networks. Um, that really works in the uh, Metro Ethernet space and now uh, increasingly in the software-defined networking space that has opened a development center um, in uh, in the Research Triangle Park area in the last uh, oh, 18 months or so, and they're getting ready to grow. They, they found the talent here uh, uh, very uh, uh, um, corollary to what they want to do and where they want to go, so they've decided to even expand more of their development team and their commitment to the area in terms of jobs but uh, also um, we are at the conclusion or almost at the conclusion of a uh, 140 million dollar infrastructure investment that uh, MCNC is overseeing in uh, rural broadband infrastructure in North Carolina. Um, 40 million of those dollars came from uh, private investments, including 10 million dollars from our endowment and 24 million dollars from uh, our, our uh, North Carolina's Golden Leaf Foundation, which is uh, part of our tobacco settlement money. And that money is supposed to be used for economic development in uh, in areas that were once dependent upon tobacco for their economy, Um, so building broadband infrastructure was a great way to do that, so $40 million came privately, uh, including some private service provider investment, and then $100 million came through uh, the Broadband Recovery Funds, the uh, Broadband Technology Opportunities Program, um, uh, administered by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, so we're we're kind of uh we're we're drawing that almost to a close. It will be complete the network will be complete, a twenty six hundred mile contiguous fiber network that touches 82 of our 100 counties in the state will be complete in the spring. So it's a good point to give an update to uh, the the public at large and to also talk about uh, extreme networks growing presence. And then finally, uh, many people are familiar with U.S. Ignite, which is a White House uh, incubated um, uh, effort um, around big bandwidth applications, or applications that improve the human condition that require large amounts of bandwidth and need to rest on uh, on uh, fiber-based networks that are high capacity and low latency, and Glenn Reichert, who is uh, what I would call the operational manager of U.S. Ignite, was with us today, and Extreme announced a commitment to uh, helping U.S. Ignite uh, grow some of those applications, particularly in the networking space. So, uh, about three or four things celebrated with today's event. Uh, I was very happy that uh, Oscar Rodriguez, who is the president and CEO of Extreme Networks, was with us and talked about uh, being here in the late 90s as an MBA student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill and how he worked in RTP and how he actually connected to uh, NC Wren when he was starting a company in the mid and late 90s so uh it was a bit of history for Oscar as well
0: so now for the benefit of folks who weren't uh who didn't catch you last year uh sure. give us a you know just a brief you know sort of one minute overview of M- MCM NC's origin uh, Sure. You guys are a non profit and one of the things yep. we discussed here in Othoma were, you know, of the possible models for moving broadband forward is yep. having the community create a non profit rather than having, say, the the city own it or rather than having it, you know, completely driven, you know, by by just the service providers alone.
1: Okay. So so our origins were actually as a research organization. Um, and we've been around since 1980, uh, and uh, it was it was a combination of um, our general assembly in North Carolina. Um, the business community in the area, particularly the technology-based business community, of which IBM was probably the largest participant in 1980 or the largest employer in 1980, and uh, um, uh, the governor's office that incubated this idea that North Carolina needed an independent research organization to do research, particularly in silicon, so the development of uh, new genera- next generations of chips and uh things that drive computer networks and computers today and just about everything that that we live with today that uh, uh that uh is electronic has obviously chips in it and that allow it to function and store memory and things like that. So we um the, the state of North Carolina kind of the visionary leaders across business and policy at that time wanted to attract um the chip making business to uh Research Triangle Park. And what they heard at that time from the Semiconductor um, Association of America and from General Electric, who was getting into the optical chip business at that time, was it would be great if you stood up an independent research organization that would help us and create help create intellectual property in the chip-making business. Mm-hmm. And um, for about 15 years, that was the main mission of MCNC, and there, therein lies the name. It's the Microelectronics Center of North Carolina. Um, That was highly successful. Um, There were about uh, 75 Ph.D. level researchers at the height of the research days, which would have been in the early 90s. Um, They created intellectual property that spun off about seven companies and a patent portfolio of about 125 patents. And naturally, it kind of evolved into we needed a test bed for those next generation of chips. Uh, They were really in the optical networking space, and we needed a test bed. So what was decided uh, was that we would create a small network that served um, initially the needs of Duke, NC State, and UNC Chapel Hill. So we have three Tier 1 universities right within our footprint. and we would build a small network that allowed those universities to interconnect with one another to share classroom content video content with one another um, and to do some research on the collaboration um that this network could could solve and and this was you know at the same time that uh, that DARPA was doing research on what would become the internet and NSFnet and DARPAnet and uh, but in this area and in combination with Maryland and a couple of other states it really became the academic and commercial side of that networking early on late 80s early 90s so uh, as kind of an ancillary piece of this we we became uh, an innovator in the network space and that evolved over time. Um, the research mission faded away um, and went to uh, mainly NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, and Duke, that had, had evolved their capability to do network research uh, during that same time period in the in the early to, to mid 90s. And uh, and as that mission was kind of going away, the network mission was expanding because people were starting to realize the uh, the The value of these kind of internet protocol open access high bandwidth low latency networks to connect research institutions and academia um, and how necessary that was to have have a communications infrastructure that was scalable economically efficient. Um, that could share information and connect these great minds that were working both within the state of north carolina and then through connection to national research networks and the internet uh... with the world so that was really kind of our birth it started out by doing the actual physical work of the equipment that would run networks but then it evolved into actually operating a network um, ourselves and then to kind of accelerate the story forward we became the backbone intranet and internet provider for the universities in the university system in North Carolina um and that mission has expanded greatly over the last uh, 6 years to where we now serve all 115 local school districts K through 12 um connect to the network we serve our 58 North Carolina community colleges we also serve um uh 24 nonprofit hospitals and about 60 public health agencies, mainly in rural areas in the state. We serve as the backbone network for uh, several research institutions, um, things like the National Institute of Statistical Sciences, which is actually headquartered here in RTP, and the National Humanities Center, which is actually headquartered here in RTP. Um, And uh, so we serve as the backbone network for about 450 endpoints. Um, and continue to kind of expand that purview. Um, And and it's any institution that requires a very high bandwidth kind of private uh, network that can connect them to each other and then connect them to the commercial Internet and the national research networks. So what we do every day now is operate this infrastructure it's called the North Carolina Research and Education Network and that kind of gets us up into uh btop and i can i can kind of explain that uh, mm-hmm. uh if you want me to go there with the next question
0: well before we before we go there something that comes to mind so basically you know one of the points i've been making to folks here is that uh some fo- some communities you know when they see a broadband network somewhere else You know, it's doing a whole bunch of, you know, various applications. But it seems like most of these networks start with a single focus. And would it be appropriate to say that uh, you can, say, say start with a research focus, that, um, you know, you're trying to find, you know, a solution to a particular issue or a problem and, and what have you, and you get together with a couple of colleges and so forth. And if you were to make the network or make developing a network part of that <clears throat> research mission, would it be easy, would it be you know logical to say that that could open you up for potential grants to be able to fund uh, that network development in the cause of that research, and then you can expand to other things later?
1: Yeah, and and Craig, I think you bring up a great point. There's got to be a driving purpose for investments in infrastructure, right? If you look at rural economic development, and you're in you're in a today, so we we. Could, you know, if if the economic developers in that part of Iowa were, were looking at, let's say, a data center to be housed there or a call center for a major company, you would have to think about critical infrastructures that would have to be funded to attract that business. You'd need roads into the site, you would need water and sewer, you'd need gas service, things like that that would need to be that would need to make that site economically viable. Well, for a call center today, you're also going to need diverse paths of fiber into that facility in order for um the owner of that facility the company owner of that facility to be attracted to that area of iowa to uh to to build that facility and and so you're right there has to be some sort of economic or research imperative in order for that to happen in North Carolina, it was probably more of a generalized vision that we had a lot of things we were researching across a bunch of different dis- disciplines: bioinformatics, biotechnology, um, climate change and climate, uh, climate change and, and weather prediction, um, telehealth and uh, development of drugs and reagents. all of those things were drivers, and we realized that we needed an infrastructure that connected multiple institutions. And uh, to each other and ease their connections to uh, the private sector and to government funders in order to, uh, and that infrastructure had to be scalable and really with no bandwidth limits, no foreseeable bl- bandwidth limits, in order to support the type of research that was happening at that time and continues to happen today. So I think you're absolutely right. There has to be some driving, driving purpose for investments in infrastructure to happen it could be growth of the community, it could be attraction of jobs it could be um the next generation of uh of uh, uh of cancer drugs or uh, Curing common ailments that have not yet been addressed in medicine. Um, it, for us in North Carolina, uh, one of the driving forces is better weather prediction. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the topography of the United States, we are basically like a jaw that sticks out in the Atlantic Ocean, and so we are very prone to hurricanes. Um, our hurricane prediction has evolved greatly in the last 20 years. Uh, If you think about Katrina or Superstorm Sandy, we knew exactly where that storm was going every step of the way for about the last four days. And as much preparation as you can do in those situations, that allowed us to do that. It allowed us to pre-position assets to do storm response afterwards. Now, these things are devastating, but you really start to see the impact of that when we can get in and pre-position assets to get people out of flood zones and things like that. So that's the type of thing that's going to drive these investments in infrastructure.
0: So now you had mentioned uh, BTOP, which I, I know a fair number of our audience will know already as the uh, one of the government agencies that uh, funded a lot of the broadband stimulus uh, projects. If you were to create like for example, you know here here in the there is a job core there's it's a it's an organization that was put together uh, federally funded that brings kids together. To um, you know, to get them jobs, get them training, but in real world stuff that they can you know get a job at. So, is it possible that you could say take a program like that, put some uh, additional goals as far as helping the community, you know, add in maybe an element where you know the, the the colleges will participate, and at the end be able to have people coming out of these programs going into uh, you know, jobs that maybe you bring as a result of enticing certain businesses here, but that you can get a, a chunk of that project, including the network um, itself, funded through some grants. So, in essence, they're funding sort of the big picture, but one of the yep. elements put in the big picture is the infrastructure, and thereby you get funded Yeah. To build it.
2: It-
1: yeah, and, and if I could, you know, it, it, and this isn't a criticism, Craig, of of how we funded things in the past, but typically agencies haven't thought about creating that diverse a grant program. Um, if you find a programmatic grant program um, like a Job Corps program, they typically haven't thought about the infrastructure that it takes to implement that program. They want you to spend money on programmatic expenses only and maybe not the infrastructure. And the same thing has worked in, in interdisciplinary research grants. A lot of times if, if you get it, if you get a grant from the cdc or um, nih for example in the healthcare space Um, infrastructure is exclusively left out as as a fundable um, piece of this and we've, we need to take a broader view. We need to take a step back and say that if certain states don't have an infrastructure in place like we're going to have in North Carolina, that really puts them at a huge competitive disadvantage in competing for these grants. And if there, if there is not at least matching funds available to uh, to, to um, a, a, even a 50-50 matching fund available, which I'm a big advocate for. I think that the local area has to have a stake in it. But if there's not matching funds available, then that really does, that really hurts your eligibility for the grant overall because you know you don't have the infrastructure to to meet the goals of the grant. So I think what we need to do is take a step back, and, and now is the perfect time to do that as we're, as we're contemplating where we go fiscally in the future. How do you make this more efficient? but how do you truly seed kind of these new programs that are going to create jobs, that are going to create innovation? And I think what you have to do is think more interdisciplinary of this. You have to think less in silos of I'm the NIH and this is what I fund, I'm the NSF and this is what I fund, and you've got to think more broadly around, okay, we've got a program here in commerce that works this way, we've got the national science foundation that has these technical areas of focus or these these research disciplinary uh, areas of focus we've got the t- department of labor that has a uh, has a job corps program and we've got nih that wants to uh you know address this next pandemic that we see coming we've got to start thinking okay how do we combine all of these efforts to come up with uh, uh, with intertwined grant programs that'll fund the infrastructure necessary to address these issues, and also put the great minds together that are going to solve the problem? Mm-hmm.
0: Now, one of the uh, one of the guests here in our chat room, you know, wonders, uh, you know, does the same kind of myopic view, if you will. Uh, where they don't see the big picture and they don't see the value of infrastructure in some of these government grant programs, are we looking at the same thing with charities? In other words, how some of these funding groups look at the charity, say, organizations that might be involved and have maybe a, resu- a re- resistance to funding those. I mean, do you see... So do you see this myopia my, myopia going? Beyond yeah, the- yeah
1: or- So, you know, I sit on probably five non-profit boards and they're very diverse and uh, over time I've probably sat on on 20 non boards everything from our local food bank to uh, I'm involved with an organization right now called triangle family services, which provides a whole suite of services for families in crisis there are many organizations with similar missions to the organizations where I've sat on the board. And one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, I'm not so worried about the programmatic mission of these organizations, but we tend to duplicate administrative and overhead costs by not working together, um, by not collaborating together in these organizations. It's not necessarily – the programmatic missions because usually you can find subtle differences and realize that the programs need to exist. But why do we need to duplicate executive and administrative costs um, for those organizations? Why can't we just consume those missions within each other? And a lot of it comes into that you know we as we as human beings naturally are resistant to change. Um, we're naturally resistant to to different ways of thinking, to collaborative ways of thinking, and usually what it takes is strong leadership that is willing to sacrifice in order to implement these things. Yeah, and I can give you – I mean, I, I, it's not a nonprofit example, but I can give you a, a staunch example of this um, – uh, ten years ago, when we were contemplating how to get our K-12 through schools onto a backbone network, we were basically going to the for-profit providers in our state, our incumbent telcos, And our incumbent cable company and saying we want you to give up the individual internet connections you supply to those 115 school districts and we want you to move to a business model where we home everything to a common backbone so that we can buy internet in bulk for those 115 school districts so in other words we you know we would go to AT&T and say we want you to sacrifice that individual connection you have to X school district turn that into just a local circuit that connects that school district back to a backbone network where they can share internet with all 115 school districts be a huge economic change save the state millions of dollars of internet costs, but we truly believe that if we did it that way, that the school districts would um, would would be freed up to use more and more internet than what they would, and the companies would eventually benefit because the local circuits they provided would continue to grow in capacity and revenue, and also that our school districts would more aggressively go after e-rate funds from the federal government to upgrade their internal district networks works because they were using more capacity so 10 years later that's exactly what has happened um, our service providers in the state have benefited greatly by giving up that small internet connection that they had five years ago and connecting everybody to a backbone network and allowing us to buy internet in bulk the, the traffic uh, we're, we're carrying ten times the K through 12 traffic that we were five years ago and everybody in the ecosystem has benefited but it took strong leadership and it took collaboration in order for that to happen and if we can do it here we can do it anywhere. I, I I honestly believe that.
0: Right, cuz you guys have had a uh, tumultuous at best relationship with a lot of the big providers there and it hasn't been pretty on some days. That's uh, that's definitely for sure. Let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> the the mechanics of how you get there. Um when we're talking about planning on the front end, if you can just give us maybe a short idea of well, who comes to the table to to kind of create that vision Sure. How do you move from the vision to the the reality, especially if you're a small community? And um, and if I can throw maybe one more variable in there, does it make sense in this exercise to maybe bring together several communities? Because at the town hall meeting we had uh, here last night, you know, some folks were asking, well, what about the rest of the county? Should they be involved in this as well? So with all that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, if if, if and are Craig, are you asking me about you know a broadband plan specifically?
0: Yes. In other words, the the process. Okay. Costs that, you know, right where we
1: are, a lot of people are at. Yeah. I mean, if I could give you a roadmap, here's what I'd do, and and then I'll talk a little bit about how we got school connectivity started in North Carolina. But the first thing I think that a county has to do is, if you're a rural county. Um, it's going to be very difficult for a private sector service provider to make the business case to build out more wired and wireless infrastructure in your county because you lack the density of population of both consumers and businesses to make the business case to give them a reasonable return on that investment and particularly our publicly traded service providers are going to look for a two to three year return on capital investment right now because there are a lot of places where Where they can put their money, their capital money, um, that are going to generate that return. If you go into a, you know, it it makes much more business sense from a shareholder perspective to upgrade um, uh, wireless infrastructure in a highly dense urban area than it does to put infrastructure dollars into a low density rural area there's just more customers to serve there's going to be higher uptake of service in that high density urban area and they're going to see an immediate return on that investment so does that make sense as kind of table stakes here
0: oh yeah most most assuredly i think people get that and they yeah. you know they're becoming more and more aware that that is the yeah. limiting factor here
1: so so uh, it's not just going to be attracting the investment, but it's going to be attracting the initial attention of both those incumbent service providers and maybe competitive local exchange carriers and others who have a little bit less staunch, uh, staunch requirements on their return on investment. For example, in North Carolina, we have a, we have a network of electric membership cooperatives, telephone membership cooperatives that have uh, incubated locally that are driven by local board boards of directors that have more of a seven to ten year view of return on capital. and They would be much more attracted to these opportunities, but I'm seeing more and more as the incumbents move to a strategy that is more based on very high bandwidth wireless connectivity that they're also becoming more interested in, r- in rural areas. And a lot of that has to do with capacity. So so with that as kind of the understanding of the economics, um, if I was a county, here, here is what I would do, or a municipality and wanted to get in this business. First of all, I would really, uh, only as a last resort, and in fact it is it is against the law for us in North Carolina now for a county or municipality to offer broadband service to its citizens the general our general assembly passed that law a couple of years ago and uh, um, it was incubated by a, a couple of uh, of uh, uh, municipalities that were offering service I, i'm not going to comment on that on on the the law or the veracity of that law, but just to know that in north Carolina It's not lawful to do that. Um, In many states, it is still lawful for uh, for uh, uh, municipalities and counties to offer service directly. But I would I would really caution. Um, thinking about that because you're talking about building an infrastructure, things like network operations center and truck rolls and, and response and installation that counties and cities usually aren't good with. So partnering with an existing entity that has those capabilities already is a much better way to go. So how do you attract that entity in? Well the first thing you can do is think like a marketing executive. Think like an economic development executive. You've got got your economic developers there right now. What do they do when they're trying to attract a, a company and job growth to the area? Well they do a whole heck of a lot of research on the company, but they also have mountains of data about the advantages and the assets of the area that they're trying to attract the company to. They know densities of population. They know things about the qualified workforce. They know where infrastructure is. They know what the county and uh, the municipality can offer to the company in terms of tax abatements uh, and incentives to attract that company to the area. They know what they can depend on the state to come back with in terms of incentives. Incentives, You've got to think of the, in the same way about broadband infrastructure. And kind of the key elements of broadband infrastructure are you know, just about every township or county charges franchise fees in these areas. There's easement fees. There's pole attachment fees that the counties and municipalities usually charge to these companies um, uh, when they come into the city uh, or when they come into to the county and um, then you know it's also um, mapping the market for them. Have you talked to the business leaders in the area of existing businesses? And is broadband capacity a problem for them? Is it is it something that's deterring their growth of business? And kind of get that underpinning there to let the company that's looking at the area, the broadband service provider that's looking at the area, know that there's a market there. There is an underpending underpinning market there, and know from an incentive perspective. Perspective, that, hey, we're willing to waive or greatly reduce um, attachment fees and easement fees for the first couple of years of operations so that you can get on your feet operationally, and then we'll grow into taking the full tax burden from you, but but we're willing for the first couple of years to help grow the business along with you and take a little bit of risk with you. So it, it, it's treating this like you would any economic development project and getting the right people from the business. Business community and the city and county officials together to talk about this and and I would encourage you not to let typical bureaucratic things that get in the way of progress like this get in the way of this. You know the county may have a different set. Uh, franchise fees and attachment fees from the city, and 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 in some areas of the country that I've been in, that would be a stopping point. That would be a showstopper. That they couldn't get together on these two things. Well, you know, my suggestion is use the most staunch of those two standards and just call that your standard, and and figure out ways instead of taking a viewpoint that we're risk averse in government and in economic development. Let's take let's take a viewpoint that um, we're risk friendly. And in some ways, we're measurable, risk-friendly, and have those types of dialogues around the discussion. There are a lot of counties in North Carolina that are going through that process right now that are broadband poor, and you'd be surprised when you get the players around the table, the business community, um, the uh, the city and county administration, and then the policy. F- people, how they'll all give each other cover to take a little bit of risk when they get and sit around the table collectively and what types of research they can do with one another. So um, I'd really encourage folks to kind of approach this with the mindset that we're going to make this work and we're going to attract Um, this type of investment in our community. And then just do the market survey and and do the work that the providers really can't afford to do um, in your area. Do that for them and present them a package, whether it's formalized through an RFP or an RFI, um, but pull it together, show your assets, show the existing fiber runs that you have, um, show what you're willing to bring to the table to attract folks in. Did that make sense?
0: Oh, no, ter- totally, totally. Now, in a situation where you may have, as is the case in a number of counties, you may have um, older, more conservative, and I mean, you know, just business thinking conservative, not political yep. issue, um, where they're reluctant to take the chance, they're reluctant to move past their comfort zone, could bring the business community to the table to basically, maybe, and maybe to a certain extent, deliver an ultimatum to say, look, this is way, the way we eat or we're out of here. Yeah, and I mean I, 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 yeah, go ahead.
1: Go ahead and finish I, your question. I'm sorry.
0: That would be sort of your tactic. You know, cuz I think economic development folks are keen on on broadband, you know,
1: moving this thing yeah. forward.
0: But I've run into a lot of people, even like on a city council who will say, "Yes, but you know the mayor is kind of old, he doesn't get technology the 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 county supervisors they kinda understand but they kind of don't right, and then that becomes the gating factor, yeah. but I think that the businesses represent you know dollars and cents I mean that pretty much is the base right there of their financial survivability and if that base walks in and says look this is where you need to go and we will be forgiving of you as in we won't vote you out of office or talk bad about you in the press if you take the chance to to, to move past some of these issues you're describing
1: yeah I mean I I think you've hit upon it Craig I, I think that that is very very important um but uh the uh, you know uh, um and, and it's not a but it's an and um i think it's also incumbent upon um the county to seek uh, uh, just a just a light touch of outside expertise I know I have probably made now over the last uh, three years since we started on the B top build, I have probably made no less than 70 presentations to um, city councils, town councils, and uh, county commissioners. Mm-hmm. And um, what I try to do is take the mystery out of this. Um, while the technology is different and the sustainability is different, what we're talking about is the road system of the new millennium. Um, Broadband infrastructure is the road system of the new millennium. And and you can see areas that developed – Um, uh, areas that developed embraced the interstate highway system and made it easy for the interstate highway system to be built you know adjacent to their communities and the same thing is going to happen with broadband those that are broadband infrastructure in rural America those that are friendly to it those that cooperate are going to thrive in it, and you're going to see the same types of economic development around uh, around uh, the the broadband superhighway as you did around uh, around the uh, the interstate system. Uh, you know, during during the Eisenhower days. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about this infrastructure, uh, you know, broadband infrastructure, is that it's much easier to maintain. It's much easier to build diverse paths of it than it was for roads. Um, basically, you know if you bury this stuff three feet underground, unless somebody cuts it or uh uh does something else uh uh to it um uh you 're not really going to have to look at it very much the The biggest thing in maintenance is to is to mark it when somebody else is digging up around it um and uh and and you know i i think people need to think about this in different ways you know and one of the things in in one of you know in the BTOP program when we went after the broadband technology opportunities grant they basically said at that time 4 years ago um that you know they didn't want you to overbuild anybody so they didn't want you to build on the exact same route that somebody else had built on already you know, a private company had invested and built on and and i'm i was staunchly in favor of that that made a lot of sense but we also have to look at this a different way. If I'm at a rural hospital and we serve we serve a, 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 a consortium of hospitals or a system of hospitals called Viden in northeastern North Carolina, and it's basically built out of the East Carolina University Medical Center in Greenville, North Carolina, but it has spines up into the northeast. And the northeast area of our state is one of the most economically challenged areas, but there's seven hospitals in the system. And if I'm at a hospital, hospital in a rural area, think about it in terms of roads. There is more than one road system that feeds into that hospital. There are multiple multiple ways to get to that hospital, probably four or five different ways to get to that hospital, a back entrance, a front entrance, all of those things. And that's because if it's blocked in one way, and if one route is blocked, you don't want an ambulance not to be able to reach that hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Well, FIBER is the same way. As we more IP enable medical devices and we bring in telehealth experts from other hospitals, you don't want one fiber connection, good Lord, to that hospital. If that fiber connection goes down, you may lose lives. Um, So you want multiple strands of fiber. So we don't want to be in an overbuild situation, but, boy, you want diverse paths if you're in a rural area and you want to attract business. And the same would hold if I'm in an advanced manufacturing business and you want me to, uh, you know, locate a plant in a rural area... Um, My supply chain is now dependent. My development chain is now dependent on an Internet connection to other folks around the world. And I want more than one path because if I only have one path, one hour of business interruption would kill me, and it would probably justify a second path. So I want that second path. And that's the way we've got to start thinking about this infrastructure. And I think that takes some of the hesitancy away. It doesn't become technology in that way. It becomes necessary. Plumbing, it becomes necessary roadway in order to run a business. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's let's shift here a little bit uh, in this uh, last segment of the show. You know, I've been I've been flooding the area here with all kinds of stories of various communities that have been successful and what they've done with broadband. What are some of your I don't know your your one or, or your two top job creation success stories that you guys have? contributed to over the last year since you and I talked uh, last November
1: yeah Okay, so um uh you know we have had to put 140 million dollars uh, into the economy very quickly through uh through the 40 million dollars we were raised privately we raised privately and then the 100 million or so dollars that we uh, that we attracted uh, through uh, broadband recovery funds from from the B-TOP program mm-hmm. and uh i think our greatest uh, our our sense of pride uh, our greatest sense of pride is that a, a lot of people may not know this but a lot lot of the fiber that's produced in the U.S. is produced in North Carolina, and Mm -hmm. most of that fiber is produced in a a, uh, uh, mid-sized town, mid-sized metropolis of Hickory, North Carolina, (laughs) which is about halfway in between Winston-Salem and Asheville on Interstate 40. Um, And uh, and, uh, there's a company that was founded in North Carolina that's headquartered in, in Hickory named Comscope. Um, That has been our wonderful, wonderful partner, um, supplying us with fiber and conduit for the B-Top build. And um, uh, Comscope in 2010, when we first started awarding contracts, um, their conduit-making plant was just about idled. And uh, today it is operating uh, at full capacity uh, based on uh, us awarding um, the conduit contract to them, uh, conduit manufacturing content. Contract to them, and about four other stimulus award winners working with them. So that mm-hmm. that one is a sense of pride. We had we had unemployment in that area um, that was a, at a very high rate, and we've been able to temper that some uh, through giving ComScope uh, the business, and and they've been a great partner. Um, I think in terms of uh, of uh, uh, what looking to the future and looking to innovation. Um, you know the Extreme announcement today really uh, heartened me a bit because when Oscar Rodriguez, who's the president and CEO of Extreme, got up to talk today, he talked about where they're headed in software defined networking. But he also talked about the talent and the infrastructure we had in place in North Carolina as a reason to come here. We're one of the few states that can offer on a statewide backbone. Strands of fiber to a company on the leading edge of innovation and networking, to put their equipment on that in a semi-production environment and evolve their equipment to where it becomes um, hardened and when they want to put it in a uh, in a customer network. So, uh, you know, my favorite story is the practical one of ComScope job growth and the hundreds of construction jobs we've created the last couple of uh, years in implementing the network um but uh, it's also in that we're setting the seeds and the foundation for future innovation and future job growth mhm
0: now from your perspective you know one one of the things that i've i've talked about for years is you know cr- is creating a uh an industry you know there are, there are places who you know network their hospitals together to create a medical community or a medical industry uh there are folks who you know Created a technology industry, like or a mini industry within their small town. If if um, if a community like Atuma wanted to become a tech a technology powerhouse, like one of the things that, that comes out of here, uh, the the local um, uh, college, actually from where I'm actually sitting right now, uh, graduates a fairly high number of students who. Uh, have skills in uh, laser technology and robotics. And what typically happens is those kids graduate and they go to the East Coast, the West Coast, everybody's coast but this, you know, non-coast, and and they want to change it. They basically want to make it so they, they stay home. But you have to create a an infrastructure, right? You have to somehow get those companies that they're going to back East or out West. How do you create, a, in essence, a mini-industry? you know with-
1: <sighs> um yeah i mean i you know golly that's a hard one for me to answer um because i am not an economic developer by trade but uh, you know i I firmly believe that it comes back to asset mapping you know, what are the competencies of your community? What are the competencies of the academic institutions that uh, exist in the community? What what do they teach? What do they teach well? What do they have access to? And then uh, I, I think you've got to start with the educated workforce piece of this in order to have the table stakes necessary to attract companies and to accelerate development and growth. Um, I firmly believe that uh, that is kind of the ultimate uh, foundation for uh, for growth. Uh, beyond that, I think uh, you've got to uh, have a uh, so so the workforce is first, but then you've got to have leaders, uh, both elected officials and the existing business community that are skilled in talking the language of those competencies. Right? Um, uh, you know, our governor in North Carolina, Bev Perdue, and and our governor elect, Pat McCrory, are both very very skilled at talking technology uh... uh... governor-elect mccrory was a uh... was uh... executive at duke energy Um he uh, uh... touched some of the uh... duke energy has a lot of fiber assets around the state they run it through a uh... uh... partly owned subsidiary called duke net they're in the wholesale business he touched a little bit of that he understands that he can speak to it governor purdue is a leader in digital education and it makes um, you know CEOs who are thinking about job growth, or or even um, innovators who are have the ideas for the next great companies in their head. It is really enticing to them to come where they know the leadership understands the business that they're in and uh they're willing to uh they're willing to be an advocate for them as they move forward so that leadership and advocacy is second um and then i think third is um not necessarily monetary incentives because i don't really like that game where states kind of uh you know bit up the anti yeah uh, where they they uh, you know where, where states compete against one another for jobs using dollars and, and tax abatements, but I think it's being smart about the infrastructure that they need, whether it be intellectual property and and burgeoning research accelerators like what we were at MCNC in the 80s, or being smart enough to talk to them about broadband connectivity as a necessary element of what they what they need what that company needs excuse me what that company needs. Um, uh, 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 that th- those are the types of things that I think you have to do in work and work in concert. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: and, you know that definitely makes uh, that that definitely makes a lot of a lot of sense. Let's um, let's uh, I'm going to do something rather different. Uh, I have uh, here in the uh, in, in the room with me. Atoma's um, uh, economic development uh, leader. Um, I know I'm to put you on the spot, but you've been following all this and, and these comments from from Fred. Do you have a question or something you may want to get a clarification on since you have the opportunity?
2: I think just... Am I right? Yeah,
0: you probably want to move over a little bit.
2: Hi, Joe.
1: Hi, how are you?
2: Good. This is David Barajas, and I'm the Economic Development Director here in Atchamal. I think D- David, it's
1: nice to, nice to uh, virtually meet you.
2: Well, well, thank you, thank you very much, and it's been very interesting listening uh, for the last
1: 45 minutes or so to the conversation
2: that you and Craig have been having. You know, here it's interesting that you make uh, the, some of your latest comments were about the, the leadership in, in, in the community, and uh, both from a from a governmental standpoint and from a from a business standpoint, and you know, those are the types of things that we are we're continuing to uh to to work on 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 developing uh, because I also do see the the importance of that as we as we try to move forward I think a question that I have is I think it's uh and a lot of people's minds you know this this idea of of broadband and fiber optics is is something that is, is very is very foreign very you know sort of out of this world and we, you know, here in Ottumwa, in have a community that I think has has a lot of great potential and has uh, has a lot of great assets with uh, a John Deere factory here that uh, that does a lot of manufacturing. The college that we're at right now, Indian Hills Community College, is a huge asset for the area. And also Cargill, both from a pork production standpoint and a a bioscience standpoint with all the uh, uh, the corn being being grown here in Iowa in the Midwest, um, it's you know trying to 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 help people wrap their minds around the really the importance of, of of fiber optics and broadband and 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 how it can truly help our our community grow and expand from a a healthcare uh, education and job opportunity standpoint. I'm trying to get people to believe. We're just at the very beginning of the process, and, and we're happy to have Craig here this week to help us with that. But I think it, it's going to take a little bit of time and, and continuing to educate people to help them um, understand, I think, the importance of this if we are going to grow and expand and, and really get them to believe that, uh, you know, here in in Middle America and in, in Southeast Iowa, that, that we can do some great things with this. And, and uh, you know, as they. Uh, potentially become sort of the diamond of the uh, uh, of the can't remember the Silicon name, Prairie of the Silicon Prairie, which is yeah. used right now. It's, it's I guess the question is is what else can we do to to get people to believe that this is definitely an area where yep. we have to go in, and and we can do it here in Middle America also.
1: You know, I think David. I think a couple of things, and you probably have already thought of these. But you know, so you've got two great anchor tenants, and it goes back to what Craig talked about. Uh, actually, you've got three great anchor tenants uh, that that can speak to this. I, I think. Um, uh, When you talk about Cargill and John Deere and the community college, those are three great uh, anchor tenants that can talk about not necessarily the the infrastructure itself and the optoelectronics that you have to put on the infrastructure to light it and things like that, but the necessity of real-time, robust, reliable communications on a global basis, what that means to their business. You know, so if John Deere is in a manufacturing plant, they are solely dependent right now on a global supply chain to get parts and pieces to that manufacturing plant. And that just doesn't happen today without real-time communications of the Internet. Cargill is likely using development teams around the world to, to uh, talk about uh, enhancing crop production, production and uh, they're also doing financial analytics around markets and things Things like that. So if some of that work is happening. Um, in, in you know, your area of Iowa, in the Silicon Prairie, you can get a Cargill executive to talk about the necessity of communication, real-time communication. And then you need to make the leap to say, we don't have the infrastructure to support this in a scalable way into the future. Um, you know, and, and use analogies, you know, basically what we're doing is we're adding more and more cars to an antiquated infrastructure. And when you've done that in the past, that means that we've upgraded the road. Well, it's our time, to upgrade the road from uh, copper infrastructure to fiber infrastructure, and here's how we do it. Here's how we attract private investment to, to do it and operate the network. But I think you've really got to make the case from a use perspective Um, and how important it is to their business make that business case make that education case first you know uh, the community college example would be you know we cannot attract we can teach this series of courses in this in this major course of study for an associate's degree but we simply do not have enough um, uh... we we simply do not have enough sessions um, of this class you know let's say nursing is an issue we simply do not have enough of, of introduction to nursing uh, 250 that class and we need to bring in somebody to teach that in a synchronous manner from uh, from one of the larger uh, urban centers in Iowa whether it be Des Moines or Ames or whatever you know Iowa State has a program and the University of Iowa has a program and we can bring in one of their professors virtually to teach this but we simply don't have the infrastructure into the community college to do that um and and so bring it into practical terms i think people are about and they're motivated by solving real practical problems and so you've got to bring it out of the bits and bytes you know Mm -hmm. and you've got to get your elected officials to ask the question well how do we solve this problem how do we solve this problem and then you can tell them the answer is an investment in infrastructure and here are the ways that we go about that
2: you know one other thing joe that uh uh, I know that as we're moving forward here, we might want to um, um, take some field trips ourselves to see what other communities and other parts of the country have done, and and uh, I wouldn't mind coming out uh, coming out your direction because it sounds like you guys are have been on the forefront of of this industry for quite a while in learning more about this.
1: Yeah, but our economic developers aren't in that vastly a different place than the challenges that you face, David. Um, this is, you know, this is still an area that, on the surface, is intimidating to people because they don't, they, they get fearful of technology. Um, they're, you know, technology to them means automation and job replacement, and exactly the opposite if, is true. If it runs, if it, uh, if it's, if it's done correctly, having this technology in place can be a job creation engine because it gives you a competitive advantage over other places in the world. You know, it, it, here's one example. You know, we have been a country that's been very fearful in certain industries about outsourcing over time. The, the textile industry here in North Carolina the automotive industry, um, foreign competition, and things like that. And and mainly that exercise for us, for for the United States, has been labor arbitrage, right? Um, Companies will go where labor costs are are expensive. This type of infrastructure, however, increases our productivity. And while other countries have broadband adoption rates that are greater than ours, um, we seem to have the most productive workforce in the world in the U.S., and we continue to have that. Our product, our productivity will only accelerate as we give folks new and better tools to work with. And that labor arbitrage is going to disappear. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, we've got about um, a minute, Joe. And so I wanted to make sure I, I got the 12 days of broadband worked in here. So can I, in a minute give us an overview? And I, I'm assuming that people just go to your website to get additional information, right, about that?
1: Yes, yes. Great. yeah i mean it's pretty it's pretty well uh it it we're about as as transparent as you can be with any type of infrastructure bill
0: okay so give us the one minute version What's, what are the twelve days of broadband
1: so the twelve days of broadband are every year we uh or for the last two years we, we take the most compelling local stories from the media about broadband distribution in North Carolina, and we put those on our website at the end of the year and call it the 12 Days of Broadband. And uh, this year you'll see a myriad of stories about, um, you know, deployments of infrastructure by our incumbent providers, particularly wireless infrastructure, and uh, those types of uh, stories. So we really highlight the 12 what we think are the best stories that we saw in the local media this year.
0: And this basically falls into that area of marketing your community and what your community is doing with broadband as a way to keep the ball rolling and expanding.
1: Absolutely. We want to keep it top of mind for people by using the power of the media.
0: Excellent. So, Joe, this has been, as always, a, a great conversation and a great way to get people to uh, you know, know what's going on and learn from some, from some of the things that you guys are doing. What's your URL, real quick?
1: It's www.mcnc. So Michael Charlie Nancy Charlie dot org.
0: Okay. So you know, folks, you can get some more information uh, from them. So uh, Joe, I will be. You know, I got to do a better job of keeping in touch, but I do want to keep in touch with what you guys are doing. I appreciate very much you taking time to be in the show today, and, and thank no you problem. for that time. I appreciate it. Uh,
1: Craig, it's a pleasure, and thank you for all you do to advocate uh, for uh, for particularly rural broadband access uh, on a nationwide basis. It's very, very necessary, and you're a great advocate.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And for our audience, thank you for uh, looking in. I uh, Next week we are going to – I am going to be in uh, Washington, D.C. There's going to be a particular conference specifically targeted to economic development. So be watching. Uh, there will be some stuff coming out uh, about that, and I'll be doing a show from there uh, next um, when, Thursday or Friday. And, uh, you know, stay tuned, tell your friends, like us on Facebook, uh, and, and have a great week and keep broadband moving. And I should also thank our – my in in room audience here from Otumba from who've had me here and have treated me very kind, though I probably would way more now than when I first got here. But it's been <laughs> a great time and this is a great place to be. Uh I'll get down to North Carolina eventually, not to worry. Uh have a great day, everybody, and we'll